Thank you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We're now continuing with the program Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism with Roy Shulman. Hi, this Hi. is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Now, my plan for today is to go back to a scripture, which is actually the central scripture in the entire New Testament about the interplay between Jew and Gentile in the period between the first and second coming, in other words, in the church, from the birth of the church on Pentecost till the um, final victory of the church, let's say, on the second coming. Uh, but this time, I'm going to be addressing the things I have addressed in the past, but I want to give, make the focus today on, frankly, divine mercy. Of course, tomorrow is the very wonderful feast of divine mercy, Divine Mercy Sunday, and I hope that, uh, I hope that we all have an opportunity to celebrate that feast. Uh, it would be wonderful if we could all celebrate that feast with the full full spectrum of the sacraments, of confession and the Eucharist. Uh, maybe some of us in these uh, rather extraordinary times will have that opportunity, but I'm sure that many of us won't. But in any case, we can all celebrate the feast day and the mercy of Jesus in one way or another. And um, perhaps I'll leave uh, until the end of the show uh, a few minutes to read uh, to read some of the key quotes from St. Faustina's diary on, on the mercy of Jesus and on the Feast of Divine Mercy. But I'm going to go now into Romans 11, but underlining, uh, in some sense, all of its um, references to the mercy of God. So with that, I, uh, let me just launch in. Now, the um, Romans 11 actually addresses a number, it addresses all of actually the key mysteries of Jew and Gentile in the church. It, it addresses, number one, the mystery of why the Jews failed to recognize Christ when he came, how that fit into God's plan. It uh, talks about um, the Jews' rejection of God and how that changed their relationship to God or didn't change their relationship to God. Um, and uh, it talks about the conversion of the Jews that has to precede the second coming. And we know that, uh, by the way, as Catholics, paragraph 674 of the New Catechism of the Catholic Church says, quote, the glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. In other words, the second coming can't happen until there's a conversion of the Jews. And Romans 11 gives the um, key to that mystery also, why God arranged salvation history in this way. And uh, jumping to the end, before the beginning of the show, the reason is because God wanted his mercy to be made manifest to all of mankind, the mercy that he has offered everyone, the undeserved, unmerited mercy that we have received through salvation in the church, whether Jew or Gentile, God wanted to be visibly, apparently, a sovereign act of his mercy. So, 
having just, uh, you know, turned to the last page of the mystery story, so to speak, let me go back to the beginning and go through the mystery as it unfolds. So reading from St. Paul's letter to the Romans, by the way, of course, it's the letter to the Romans. Why is the letter to the Romans? The Romans were Gentiles. In other words, you can think of this as the letter to the Gentiles, that this, uh, the letter to the Romans is ex in the letter to the Romans, St. Paul is explicitly addressing the Gentiles and talking to the Gentiles about uh, how they should view the relationship between Jew and Gentile in the church. So, starting with Romans 11, verse 1, St. Paul, quote, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, this isn't so counterintuitive to us now in the 21st century. It's actually was underlined very heavily in Vatican II, and all of the popes from Vatican II on have spoken very forcefully that God has not rejected the Jews just because they rejected Jesus when he came. Um, and that teaching in Vatican II, which find, is found in the document Nostra Aetate, of course references Romans 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. It's important to underline this because uh, there was a, a misconception that was prevalent in the early church, which is not counterintuitive at all, which is that since the Jews um, turned on Jesus and um, argued for his crucifixion, uh, were so in violation of their fidelity to the Messiah when he came, perhaps God reciprocated by turning his back on the Jews. However, here we have the full weight of sacred scripture saying that it cannot possibly be the case, quote, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. But this leaves the mystery of what about the Jews' failure to recognize Christ. So go, going back to the text of Romans 11, verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it sought. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see, and ears that should not hear, down to this very day. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. Very mysterious, right? That the Jews' failure to recognize Christ wasn't entirely their own fault, wasn't entirely due to their stubbornness and hard-heartedness and pride and so forth, but it in itself was a very mysterious aspect of divine providence. Just rereading those few verses. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it sought. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see, and ears that should not hear. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. So, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. So somehow God, God's providence was served by this darkening of the Jews' eyes, by their hearts being hardened, and their ears, uh, excuse me, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear, and their eyes being darkened so that they did not recognize Jesus. Very, very mysterious, but fortunately, St. Paul goes on 
to address why God did this. So continuing with verse 11, by the way, I'm not adding a word to Romans 11. I am skipping verses here and there uh, in order to make the outline clear, the flow of St. Paul's argument clear. Uh, he sometimes goes down little side paths which can make it a little bit harder to follow the mainstream of his line of reasoning. Um, having said that, because I know I too am guilty of going down side paths and um, and getting distracted from the main stream of the line of argument, let me say that this is a live call-in program. I'm happy to receive happy to receive um, calls. The number here is eight six six three 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 six two seven nine or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And should a call come in, I will interrupt myself and address the, um, the call if you have any questions or comments. Um, of course, it probably would be useful if, if those questions or comments were, were um, relatively directly related to the subject matter in one way or another of, of today's show. Anyway... As I was saying, St. Paul then continues to say, why God did this? Why would God do this? Why would God harden the hearts of the Jews so that they didn't recognize Jesus, give them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear, and darken their eyes so that they cannot see Jesus when he came as the Son of God, as the long-promised Jewish Messiah? Why did they do this? Why did, excuse me, why did God do this? Uh, St. Paul goes on with verse 11 to tell us, so I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means, but through their trespass salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So four times in these short verses, St. Paul says the same thing over and over and over again, literally four times. Their trespass means riches for the world. Their failure means riches for the Gentiles. Um, their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. Their tresp uh, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. What is going on here? Why was the Jews' failure to recognize Christ necessary for the church to spread properly among the Gentiles, among the rest of the world. That's what these verses mean, right? Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Their trespass means riches for the world. Um, their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. The Jews' rejection of Christ meant the reconciliation of the entire world, the entire non-Jewish world, to God through the church. Somehow it seems to have been dependent on the Jews having rejected Christ. So what's going on here? And I think we see what's going on here. If we look at the book of Acts, if we look at the very first church council, which was called All of the Apostles Had to Return to Jerusalem to address this thorny issue, this crisis in the early church, which was in danger of sinking the evangelization of the Gentiles in the early church. What was this crisis? The crisis was, are we allowed to let non-Jews into the church 
or is the church only for Jews so that if a Gentile, if a non-Jew, wants to become a Christian, does he have to first convert to Judaism in order to qualify for entry into the church, the Christian church? Now, that seems very, very counterintuitive to us today, but if one throws oneself back into the world of 50 AD, which is when the Council of Jerusalem was called, about 17 years after the crucifixion, you can see where this error came from. Because, of course, not only was Jesus a Jew, but he was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. What he brought about was post-Messianic Judaism. What he did was he, he fulfilled the promise of Judaism with the coming of the Jewish Messiah, which was him, which was what was always expected in Judaism when the Messiah would come, that Judaism would somehow be transformed by him having come. So, and in fact, that's what happened, right? You can think of the Catholic Church as transformed Judaism. You can actually think of Judaism and the Catholic Church not as two entirely distinct religions, so to speak, but as two phases in the same plan for salvation that God has always had in mind for mankind from the Garden of Eden onward. That plan for the salvation of all mankind involved the incarnation of the second person of the Most Holy Trinity as a man. That was, um, if that was going to happen, there would have to be some preparation of mankind to make sense of it, to allow that to happen, and so forth. So one can see Judaism as phase one of this plan of salvation to prepare mankind for the incarnation of God as man, and in particular to prepare one people to host the incarnation of God as man. That would be the descendants of Abraham, the Jews. They would be given divine revelation and so forth in order to enable the incarnation of God as man and to make sense of it when it happened. And so Judaism was like phase one of this plan of salvation. And the Catholic Church, of course, was always the intended fulfillment phase of it in which the gift, the huge gift to mankind, which came about through the incarnation of Christ, the Jewish Messiah, would be propagated to all of mankind through Christianity, through the Catholic Church and her sacraments. So you can think of Judaism as a pre-incarnation Christianity, let's say, and as the Catholic Church's post-incarnation Christianity. In any case, Judaism as pre-incarnation plan for salvation of God and Christianity as post-incarnation plan of salvation for God. So, of course, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Jesus was a Jew. All of the apostles were Jews. All of the disciples were Jews. I don't want to scandalize anybody, but St. Joseph, the Blessed Virgin Mary, they were all Jews. Um, the, uh, uh, the disciples that Jesus made were all Jews. The 3,000 who entered the church on the first Pentecost Sunday when Peter preached were all Jews. The church clearly sprang from Judaism and in its early days was seen as, in some sense, a sect of Judaism. It certainly was an outgrowth of Judaism and all of the characters involved were Jews. So it was a very logical error if you paint that backdrop for the early Christians um, to, which, who were predominantly Jews who had entered the church to see uh, the church as 
perhaps meant at least first and foremost for Jews, if not uniquely for Jews. Now, that, that issue, are we allowed to let Gentiles into the church, or do we first have to require them to convert to Judaism before they qualify for entering into the church? That was the question which had to be resolved at this first church council, the Council of Jerusalem around 50 AD. That council, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, resolved it that, of course, um, non-Jews, Gentiles is just another word for non-Jew, by the way, so non-Jews or Gentiles were absolutely welcome in the church on exactly the same basis as um, as uh, as Jews but that fine that was a theological resolution of the problem but we still needed a kind of a um, a marketing a, a kind of a mass market marketing public relations solution to the problem and that solution to the problem came about precisely because the early church quickly became visibly Gentile. You see this in, in the travels of St. Paul, and you see it in the letters of St. Paul in the book of Acts. St. Paul would go from town to town. He would first preach to the Jews. They would stone him. They would give him 39 lashes. They would leave him for dead. Then he would turn around and turn from the Jewish community in that town and preach to the Gentiles, the non-Jews in that town, and they would give him a much warmer reception, and many would enter the church, and then he would go to the next town and do exactly the same thing, preach to the Jews, be rejected by them, preach to the Gentiles, and be accepted. Pretty soon, the people flowing into the church were almost all Gentiles, and pretty soon the church was visibly Gentile. No one could any longer make the mistake to think that we're talking about Judaism and we're talking about something that's only for Jews because the church was visibly Gentile. That problem was practically solved, the problem of whether, um, whether the world would see the gift of Christianity as having been extended to all of mankind on an equal basis or somehow giving favoritism to the Jews, that possible mistake was avoided precisely by the Jews' rejection of Christ. Because as a result of the Jews' rejection of Christ, the church within the first generation or so became visibly composed of part Jew and majority Gentile. I'll just quickly reread those verses that I just read so that in, in the light of what I just said. Um, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see, and ears that should not hear, down to this very day. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. So I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means, but through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So let me point out two things in the verses that I just read. First of all, this very, very beautiful statement, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? In other words, world, look at this. If the Jews' failure to follow Jesus was such a gift to the world, just imagine what a greater gift it will be when they do follow Jesus, when they do convert. Um, I will talk more about that in a moment. That's one very beautiful thing that comes through from these verses. 
But there's another thing I wanted to underline. But through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. And this, my friends, is the answer to the question I'm sometimes asked, how should one evangelize the Jews? How are we to evangelize our Jewish friends, our Jewish neighbors, maybe our Jewish accountant or doctor, maybe our Jewish son-in-law, whatever? What's the best way to evangelize a Jew? And I think St. Paul gives us the answer here. Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. That is how I think everyone in the long run, the best way for anyone to be evangelized, is just let them know what we have in our Catholic faith and in our sacramental life. We have what everyone in the world is dying to have. We have the most precious thing, the, the thing that every human soul hungers after the most, longs for the most, thirsts after the most, which is a absolute personal knowledge of and personal relationship with God. Um, when I was growing up Jewish, I would have given my right hand simply to know the truths of the faith, which are given in the Penny Catechism. I was tortured by all of these questions like what happens after we die, what does God want from us, what's, God re what's God's relationship to the world, why do bad things happen to good people, um, you know, what meaning is there to the happenstance of our lives, what meaning is there to our suffering, why if God is all-powerful does he allow suffering, all of these questions torture the human soul. We have the answers in black and white in the Penny Catechism, as well as, of course, in the Adult Catechism of the Catholic Church. And we not only have the answers to all these questions, but more profoundly, we actually have the intimate, personal relationship with the second person of the Most Holy Trinity. I, I hope that all of us, and I know that many of us, do experience at many points in our lives a personal intimacy with Jesus, a personal intimacy with the Blessed Virgin Mary, a personal intimacy with the Holy Spirit, and um, perhaps some interaction with some worship of and some experience of God the Father. We know as Catholics in a state of grace that we are able to actually literally have the indwelling three persons of the Most Holy Trinity in our hearts. That my friends, is enough to make anyone jealous. And, um, of course, you can't go to your Jewish neighbor and say, I have the indwelling Most Holy Trinity. Don't you want that? Isn't, doesn't that make you jealous? Of course not. But you can go to your neighbor and let them know the peace you have, the inner peace you have, the peace you have when a disaster strikes, when something bad happens, uh, the peace you have when you have to go through suffering or when you suffer a loss, the peace you have because you know what awaits you after death, uh, the peace you have because you know that you will be reunited with your loved ones who have passed away, the peace you have from bringing your problems to Jesus, from um, feeling the presence of the Blessed Virgin Mary when you pray the, the rosary, or perhaps even most cosmically, 
the consolation you have, the joy you have, the love you feel from receiving the Blessed Sacrament, if you just let others know what we have in our relationship with God through the sacraments of the Catholic Church and through our personal relationship with Jesus, that's enough to make anyone jealous, perhaps even especially a Jew, since the Jews were created and they were bred, so to speak, over 2,000 years to have a particular hunger and thirst for God and for the Messiah. So that's been a bit of a digression, I guess, um, or it's been at least a bit of a, of a side trip, but it comes straight from this verse from St. Paul. Have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means, but through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. St. Paul knows that what is going to convert the Jews is when they see the Gentiles in the church and become jealous of what those Gentiles in the church have. Now I will go on with the very next verse because St. Paul repeats the same thought. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. You see, St. Paul is saying explicitly here, he is fired up in his ministry to convert the Gentiles because he knows that through his ministry to the Gentiles, the more successful he makes his ministry to the Gentiles, the more he will make his fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. In other words, the more he will make more Jews jealous and thus bring them also into the church. I hope you've, you, you, I mean, I wish I could look at your faces because I think this is incredibly exciting. Anyway, going on, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Um, so when he says, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit now, but I will get to the end of the chapter before the end of the show. And we will see that St. Paul paints this picture in which um, Jesus comes to the Jews, the Jews reject Jesus, the Gentiles flood into the church. When the full number of the Gentiles have come into the church, the veil will be lifted off the eyes of the Jews. They too will come into the church and then the church composed of Jew and Gentile will be ready for the second coming. Now, I jumped ahead to say that because I want to mention the second coming because this whole chapter of Romans 11 about the conversion of the Jews culminates in the fact that they have to be converted for the second coming to happen. I think that this verse itself, when it says, when St. Paul says, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead, is in itself a, um, subtle, uh, a subtle reflection of the second coming, a, a subtle pointer to the second coming. Because when, look at the phrase he uses. Uh, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So you have this image of life from the dead. Now we know from the words of Jesus just before the crucifixion, when he's talking about the second coming, he says, if man is like this when the wood is green, what will he be like when the wood is dry? So you have this picture of the green wood with the sap of life flowing through it, being the spiritual life of mankind when Jesus came. And when he comes again, the wood will be dry. It will be like a piece of 
dead wood. It'll have the sap will have dried up and the wood will have died. I'll repeat that verse from Jesus. If man is like this when the wood is green, what will he be like when the wood is dry? With a reference to second coming. So when St. Paul says, um, uh, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? I think that image of life from the dead resonates with the image of the uh, living wood having died and then coming back to life, being revitalized by the um, sap, so to speak, of the flood of Jews into the church. So when the church goes through what we know as the great apostasy, that's actually dogma from the Catechism of the Council of Trent, that before the second coming there'll be a widespread falling away from the faith, which is known as the great apostasy. I think we have this image here that somehow, you know, that great apostasy, that'll be like the wood being dry, drying out, and the Jews flooding into the church will be like this revitalizing sap that flows into the church and gives it a, a final surge of vitality just before the second coming. Um, now, before I go on to the next verse in Romans 11, I want to go to the verses that talk about the... Um, Council of Jerusalem, remember? The council in 50 AD when it was decided that um, the church wasn't just for Jews, but it was just as much for Gentiles as for Jews, and a Gentile would not have to convert to Judaism in order to enter the church. So let me um, read, uh, I, uh, let me read the passage. It's in Acts 15. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, and to charge them to keep the law of Moses. Okay, so here here is the crisis, right? Some of the early Christians who had been Jews, I mean, there were Jews in the church, were teaching the, uh, the other early Christians that you have to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses. And in fact, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, so you see that, some of the Jews who entered the church came from the party of the Pharisees. We all remember the Pharisees from the New Testament. They were uh, really hung up on the scrupulous observance of ritual law. They were totally focused on the scrupulous observance of ritual law. And the early Christians who had been Pharisees rose up and said it's necessary to circumcise them and in fact to make them keep the entire law of Moses. All the laws about the Sabbath, all the laws about keeping kosher, all the laws about what you're uh, allowed to wear, not allowed to wear, ritual purification, and so forth. This required uh, the first council, so therefore the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. All of the apostles had to return to Jerusalem in order to resolve this matter. It was a, was a church council like, like Vatican Council II, when, except of course in those days there were only 12 bishops. Right, the apostles. Um, maybe there were 13. I don't know how you count St. Paul. 
they all had to gather together, have the first ecumenical church council, the Council of Jerusalem in 50 AD, to consider this matter. Now we get to the heart of that council. After there had been much debate, Peter rose and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you make trial of God by putting a yoke among the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we shall be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So St. Peter puts this in a very, very beautiful and concise form, and he's pointing out to the council elders who are overwhelmingly Jews. I don't know if they were literally every single one of them was a Jew in the church, but certainly most of them were Jews in the church. And he says, look, we're not being saved through our observance of the law. We believe we shall be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Okay, We will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. We're not being saved anymore by the law. And he also said, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their hearts by faith. So you see... Uh, I, I, I'm just going to actually re repeat those couple of verses um, and then explain them a little more. St. Peter speaking, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So in the very early days of the church, St. Peter was preaching to the Gentiles. That wasn't his main vocation. We know his main vocation was apostle to the Jews. But, you know... In the, he started out also preaching to the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, it's telling that it was through St. Peter that God revealed to the early church that they were actually to evangelize the Gentiles. You remember that story? I think it's in the beginning of Acts. Uh, St. Peter is in Joppa, and um, he thinks he has to eat kosher, and he sees a sheet being lowered down from heaven, with all kinds of unclean animals on it, and a voice saying, Take and eat. And St. Peter says, No, not me, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. And three times that sheet is lowered, and he's told, Take and eat. And the voice says, That which I have made clean you shall not call unclean. So, in fact, it was a revelation to St. Peter that first revealed that the gospel should be preached to uh, Gentiles. So St. Peter is making reference to that here. Then he goes on to say, uh, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. Okay, he's telling the Jews, look, you're, you've been sanctified not by observance of the law. You've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit, by being given the Holy Spirit. And God gave the Gentiles the Holy Spirit the same way he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their hearts by faith. Okay, so he's reminding the Jews, you haven't been purified by the ritual law. You haven't been purified by your sacrifices and by your prayers and by your mikvot, by your ritual baths. You've been um, 
uh, purified, your heart has been cleansed by faith, and God has done the same thing with the Gentiles, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And I will point out that immediately following that scene in the book of Acts where St. Peter sees a sheet lowered from heaven three times, he goes to the house of Cornelius and baptizes Cornelius's family. Okay, so um, he is... Um, He's basically giving, uh, giving these Gentiles the indwelling Holy Spirit himself, and he's kind of the same first one who did it. I think he's the one who went to the, um, I'm sure he is, in fact. He's also the one who went to the Ethiopian eunuch. Wasn't that him? No, anyway, no matter it was Stephen. Never mind. Anyway, uh, I'll stop flying by the seat of my pants. I get in too much trouble. Um, anyway, then St. Peter says, Now why therefore do you make trial of God by putting a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? That yoke, of course, is the law, that even the Jews who tried to follow the law as scrupulously as possible bore this heavy, heavy burden, this yoke on their neck, and yet even the, the best of the Jews were not able to achieve um, uh, salvation through the law. So we weren't even able to do it. Why are you trying to put the same yoke on the neck of the Gentiles? We realize, of course, that we'll be saved through the grace of Jesus Christ, just as they will. So they're in the same situation as us. We were not saved by the law. We did not succeed at the law. The law did not purify us. It was um, God cleansing our heart through faith and giving us the Holy Spirit that saved us through the grace of the Lord Jesus, and it's the same story with the Gentiles. So we see that we have this contrast here between observance of the law and simply receiving the superabundance of divine grace, of, of the mercy of God that he wishes to pour out on us and on all mankind, that the only requirement for receiving the infinite mercy of God is wanting it, is faith and is opening oneself up to it and accepting it. So this entire story of the first uh, church council, the Council of Jerusalem, in some sense, is a is a um, paean of praise to the fact that salvation is a sovereign act of the divine mercy of God. And it had nothing to do with being Jew Jewish. It had nothing to do with the election that came to the Jews by being the seed of Abraham. It had nothing to do with observing the Jewish law. It had everything to do with the sovereign act of mercy of God poured out on us um, through the grace that comes to us through faith in Jesus. So let me go on with this. Oh, my goodness. I run out of time so easily on these shows. Anyway, let me go on with a the final scene, so to speak, in this First Council of Jerusalem, which is um, incredibly beautiful. Um, and it is uh, James. And now James was the cousin of Jesus. James was the first bishop of Jerusalem. James was therefore, um, I don't know how to characterize it in a kind of um, correct way from the point of view of church law, but he was the bishop to the Jews, you could say, because he was the bishop of Jerusalem. He was the bishop in the heart of Judaism, 
uh, of course, Rome is the heart of the Catholic Church, and the Bishop of Rome is the Pope. So you could see, you could perhaps say that uh, James was kind of the Jewish Pope, so to speak. He was the Pope to Judaism. So James is replying here, and he is replying in the words of the Old Testament. And it's, it's this beautiful passage from the Old Testament which says exactly what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. And it says essentially that the church, that the, that the Messiah will transform Judaism into a church, into an assembly, into a synagogue for the entire world, Jew and Gentile. That when the Messiah comes, he is going to extend the umbrella of Judaism over the entire Gentile world. This already in the Old Testament um, and um, you'll see this when I read the verses. So this is James's reply at the Council of Jerusalem. Brethren, listen to me. With this the words of the prophets agree, as it is written, quote. And now what he's quoting is from the prophet Amos. Okay, so this is the quote. Uh, it's coming out of the mouth of St. James, but he, St. James is quoting the prophet Amos. So remember, these words were spoken by God to the Jewish people centuries and centuries and centuries before the coming of Christ. And these are the words that God gave, um, prophesying, so to speak, what would happen after the Messiah came. After this I will return. Okay, he will return. That was when God came to earth as Jesus. After this I will return, and I will rebuild the dwelling of David which has fallen. What's the dwelling of David, the house of David? The high priesthood had to be of the house of David. The house of David was the sacramental church. This house of David was the temple in Jerusalem. It was, it was the dwelling place of God among the Jewish people in Jerusalem was the house of David. The, um, and the prophet already in the Old Testament is saying, when the Messiah comes, the house of David will have fallen. We see this, of course, in the New Testament. We just went through Holy Week. We saw the depravity, the, the degeneracy, the, the violation, the corruptness of the Jewish priesthood at the time that Jesus came. This is being prophesied. The house of David will have fallen, and the Messiah will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen. In other words, the, the Jewish sacramental church will have fallen into disrepair at the time the Messiah comes, and the Messiah will rebuild it. I will rebuild its ruins. I'm going back to the prophecy now. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, that the rest of men may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who has made these things known from of old. So here we have this prophecy in the Old Testament being cited by James at the uh, Council of Jerusalem. In this prophecy... God says, look, I am coming back. I am coming to earth. That, of course, happened with Jesus. When I come to earth, the, um, the Jewish church will have fallen into ruins, so to speak. The, the, um, the, the sacramental Judaism, the high priesthood, the house of David will have fallen into ruins. But I will rebuild the dwelling of David. I will rebuild the house of God on earth, which 
of course we now know is in the human heart. I will rebuild its ruins. He will rebuild the ruins of the covenant between God and man which had been established in Judaism. And I will set it up, not for the Jews, but I will set it up that the rest of men may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. So it's being prophesied that when the Messiah comes, he will come into a Judaism that's fallen into disrepair. He will rebuild it, but he will rebuild it not for the Jews, but for the whole world. That's exactly what happens. Remember St. Francis of Assisi. Remember when he was praying, and he was praying in this fallen-down chapel, and God says to him, Rebuild my church. That's what the case was with Jesus, right? Rebuild my church. Jesus came to rebuild God's church. He rebuilt the church of, quote, Judaism, close quote, but he rebuilt it not as this little chapel for the Jews, but as the true church for the entire world. He will rebuild out of the ruins of Judaism, so to speak. He'll set it up, the, the, the true church, the Catholic church, the universal church, not just for the Jews, but for all men that seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by his name. Um, I wish I could see your faces again, because, I, again, I think this is really, really exciting. Now, so we see from this Council of Jerusalem that um, if one read the Old Testament scriptures um, with uh, the right eyes, you know, with an open heart, one saw already in the Old Testament that, yes, Judaism was for all mankind, it wasn't for the Jews, and that when the Messiah came, he was to convert the entire world the house of David, so to speak, which had fallen down, would be rebuilt and extended over the entire Gentile world. And that wasn't a discovery that came after Jesus came. It was a prophecy that was already apparent in the Old Testament. Uh, it's also, by the way, in other places in the Old Testament, in Isaiah also, you see this very strong sense that the role of the Messiah will be to propagate the gift that had in some sense been associated with Judaism throughout the whole world. So um, I'd better go on because I only have 10 more minutes. Uh, but if there's a call, I'm happy to take a call. Um, but I am going to actually, um, should I skip? No, I won't skip, but I'll, I'll just go quickly through. Continuing with the letter to the Romans. Uh, St. Paul goes into his central metaphor of the church between the first and second coming. That metaphor is the image of an olive tree, the olive tree of salvation. The um, original trunk of the olive tree was Judaism. Uh, the tree was planted in Judaism. The original cultivated olive branches were the Jews, but some of those original cultivated olive branches were broken off, that's the Jews who didn't follow Jesus, in order to make room to graft in wild olive branches, those are the Gentiles that entered the church. And now I'll go into the words of St. Paul. He's, remember, he's speaking to the Gentiles, but if some of the branches were broken off, those were the um, Jews who were originally part of the cultivated olive branch, were broken off, That's they were broken off, i.e. they did not follow Jesus. The ones who did follow Jesus were never broken off. So he's talking about the Jews 
who did not follow Jesus. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the richness of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true, but do not become proud, but stand in awe, for even the others, if they do not persist in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So I'll just give a little exegesis of this. I think it's pretty apparent. He's speaking to the Gentiles. He's using this metaphor of the olive tree of salvation. The um, olive tree was, was Judaism. The trunk of the olive tree was Judaism. Uh, the original cultivated branches were the Jews. Some of them were broken off to make room to graft in wild olive branches. That's the Gentiles in the church. St. Paul's speaking to those grafted in wild olive branches. He's saying, look, don't boast over the broken off branches. Right? That would be the temptation. It's still the temptation, right? How could those Jews have not recognized Jesus when he came? I'm so much better than them. I'm in the church, and now they're left by the, you know, out in the wilderness. Um, and not only that, God considered me more important than them because he actually broke them off just to make room for me. Ha, 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 ha. A natural fallen human nature temptation, but don't fall into it because remember, first of all, they were only broken off to make room for you, so you should be grateful about that. Second of all, they're not necessarily broken off forever. Uh, oh, the, uh, second of all, no, remember, it's not you that support the root, that, but the root that supports you. So remember that even you in the church are dependent on Judaism flowing into the church, right? You, the Gentiles, grafted onto the olive tree, the Gentiles in the church, are not supporting the root of the tree. The root is supporting you, and that root is Judaism. Again, St. Paul is saying this, not me. Um, and then St. Paul goes on to say, and look, you know, don't boast over those broken off cultivated olive branches, the Jews who rejected Jesus. If you're tempted to boast, you better be careful, because remember, God has the power to graft them in again, and when he does, he'll be even better suited to the tree, because they were originally a part of it. Uh, as St. Paul said, um, even the others, if they do not persist in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Again, don't blame me. This is St. Paul speaking. So we have this uh, central image of the olive tree of salvation that was originally Judaism. The original cultivated branches were the Jews. Some of those were broken off. Those are the Jews that didn't follow Christ to make room for grafted in wild olive branches. Those are the Gentiles in the church. But um, don't boast, if you're a Gentile in the church, don't boast over the broken off original olive branches, because God has the power to graft them in again, and when he does, they'll be even better suited to the tree. So we then have this uh, image of the olive tree of salvation composed of uh, three kinds of branches, you could say. Original cultivated branches, which were never broken off. That's the Jews who didn't reject Christ. Broken off um, olive branches that were grafted back in again. Those are the Jews that converted in time for the second coming, 
and then the grafted and wild olive branches. Those are the Gentiles in the church. And the church, when it's composed of those three kinds of olive branches, will be ready for the second coming. I only have a couple of minutes, so I'm going to race through the last few verses. I apologize. Um, Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brethren. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in, and so all Israel will be saved. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all men to disobedience that he may have mercy upon all. That is the reason God did this. God wants salvation to be a sovereign act of his mercy, nothing that anyone could have earned or deserved. The Gentiles, when Christ came, were out of relationship to God. They were disobedient, so to speak. So when they entered the church, it was obvious to them and to everyone that this great gift of salvation was a sovereign act of the mercy of God. The Jews were in relationship to God when Christ came. So if they immediately came into the church, they would have thought they deserved it. They also had to pass through a period of disobedience so that when they came into the church, it would be obvious to them also that salvation was a sovereign act of the mercy of God, nothing that they could have earned or deserved by being such good Jews. God wanted, as St. Paul says, God consigned all men to disobedience that he may have mercy upon all. Now, I know I gave that short shrift because I ran out of time, but that is the link between this and Divine Mercy Sunday. The entire system that God set up of the church first going to the Jews, so to speak, in the form of Judaism, then being withdrawn from the Jews and given to the Gentiles, and then in time for the second coming, being extended to the Jews again, the veil being lifted and them entering the church, was so that salvation to everybody would be a sovereign act of the mercy of God. God wanted all men to pass through a period of disobedience so that salvation would be a sovereign act of the mercy of God. The Gentiles' period of disobedience was before Jesus came. The Jews' period of disobedience was between the first and second coming. The Gentiles went from their disobedience into the church when Jesus came the first 2,000 years. The Jews will go from their period of disobedience into the church just in time for the second coming. God has consigned all men to disobedience that he may have mercy upon all. So I hope that made sense. With that, I wish you all a very happy and fulfilled and fulfilling Divine Mercy Sunday. And, um, I, and, and I, my heart goes out to those who will not be able to go to confession or receive communion on Divine Mercy Sunday. It's a great, great sacrifice. It's a great tribulation is a great uh, chastisement, um, like uh, every other great suffering to be offered up to God, frankly, lovingly, for the salvation of souls and for his honor and for the conversion of sinners. And with that, all I can do is point you to St. Faustina's diary, or just Google, please, just Google Divine Mercy Sunday, St. Faustina's diary, and um, please um, ponder the beautiful citations from... Uh, St. Faustina's diary on both the Feast of Divine Mercy and the fact that the only, only limiting factor 
to the grace that Jesus wants to pour out upon us is our willingness to acknowledge our need for his mercy and our hunger for his mercy and our willing reception of the graces he wants to extend to us through his fathomless mercy and our trust in his mercy. Remember the saying at the bottom of the image of the merciful Jesus that was revealed to St. Faustina, Jesus, I trust in you. So let us all recommit ourselves this Divine Mercy Sunday to an ever richer, ever fuller, ever deeper trust in Jesus who wants nothing. He's being pained by only one thing, which is our reluctance to receive his mercy. So with that, it's time to say goodbye. You've been listening to Roy Showman on Radio Maria. The show is Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. I hope you join us again next week. Same time, same place. Bye for now.